then it means rejoice. As we find repeated in the entrance antiphon, rejoice Jerusalem and all who love her. So we rejoice in this turn of the Lenten journey for the resurrection is only three Sabbaths away. But also keep in mind that every dedicated period within the seasonal cycle of our calendar, whether in nature it's celebratory, penitential, contemplative, you name it, whatever it may be, it ought to reflect upon each and every personal calendar of life that is infused by a faith such as this. In other words, while every season which the church repeats annually is a means for all the faithful to live in the communal mystery of the faith across time from the very beginning when Jesus appeared till the end of time when he will come again, these seasons issue lessons and graces in each particular life. They come and present in this moment, in our own particular circumstances. Some of those circumstances which bear upon us now and the present have certainly involved, which certainly involve the pandemic and the accompanying, cha accompanying challenges that are provoked by it or surround it, such as financial incident stability or concern, flux within the, perhaps the education system, seemingly endless roller coasters in the uh, political landscape, and who, who knows how many more things that have been troubling over this time. All these this is particular to our time. And though it doesn't, certainly our plight doesn't, doesn't really measure up to the catastrophe and sorrow experienced by our Jewish ancestors in the faith that we read in the second book of Chronicles who were subject to exile, the episodes we've been facing in this past year certainly warrant a cry for help, a personal and collective submission to a savior. But regardless of the generation or the measure of the crisis that is faced, at every moment, the lesson of hope, which summons us to rejoice at all times, is with us. The St. Paul says in his letter to the people at Philippi in his closing remarks, rejoice always in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all, for the Lord is near. That's the central issue that drives our faith, that's the, that the Lord is near at hand. A promise made from the very beginning is reiterated by Jesus to Nicodemus, that the promise is being fulfilled. And he demonstrates that by keep, uh, recalling the, that iconic prefigurement of his cross when he Speaks of the um, uh, speaks of the bronze uh, serpent in the desert, but marks that um, in John three sixteen, God so loved the world, so loved it that He gave His only Son, so that anyone who believes in Him may not perish, but possess eternal life. Beautiful verse. It's the first verse I remember uh, before becoming Catholic. Um, as the, the scriptures were our only catechism uh, growing up uh, outside of the, um, in our evangelical faith, you know, we, you know, that was the first verse I had to memorize. And for good reason. It permeates every article of the faith. Not just 
in the limited faith that I possessed, you know, back when I was a Protestant, but in every article of the faith we possess as Catholics, it bears relevance at every point in time. That God so loves the world that he doesn't leave it to its own self-destructive demise, but intercedes between us and that fatal end which would otherwise come about in consequence of our sin. And to illustrate that point clearly, Jesus calls to mind the, one of the richest prefigurements in Jewish history that may, says, my cross was inevitable. The brazen serpent of Moses in the, in the desert. To summarize that event, I mean, you can read about it. It's very, it's very short uh, rec, um, very short narrative in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. But to summarize, the people of Israel are making their way in, in what, one of their recorded wanderings in the deserts, and they had just engaged and defeated one of the Canaanite kings on their, on their journey, and they were bypassing the land of Edom so as to avoid hostilities. And according to that story, you know, the journey that went around that land was very cumbersome, And they start to complain like little children. They've been known to do this multiple times in the wanderings of the desert. The very first moment that they entered the desert, after being saved from the destruction of the Egyptian army in the crossing of the Red Sea, they gripe to Moses and complain about food and water and wish they were back in Egypt. But this moment altogether is different from previous complaints. Here Israel doesn't gripe about having no food, for they had long since been receiving daily portions of manna from heaven. They'd also been blessed by the providence of um, quail, from like the quail migrations through the the wilderness, and water was plentiful wherever uh, Moses provided it. And and this time, I mean, um, this time they, they had that. But the complaint is altogether different in kind. When they first exit Egypt, they shout, where is the food? Where is the water? As if to say, where is our Savior, Moses? Where is our Savior? But in in this case, they don't grumble about having no food. They grumble about the food. They say, we are disgusted with this food. We wish we were back in Egypt. In the first complaint, they effectively cry out, yes, that where is our Savior? But in this instance, it's more like, Lord, you suck as a Savior. And in response, God gives them a monumental reminder of what it means to need a Savior. He allows a multitude of seraph serpents which were known to be very venomous with their bite, into the Israelite camp, and naturally it causes chaos. Most become severely sick, and many of them die. And in turn, the people cry out to Moses to pray and intercede for them. God gives instruction that Moses mount a bronze serpent upon a pole and position it within the camp, and anyone who looks upon it is healed from the serpent's bite. In our history, God has been known to redeem his people through 
creative signs. But this one takes the cake, I think. First of all, it's remarkable that Moses be commanded to forge an image whatsoever. What was the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, which in, with it came an additional instruction that no graven image should be made of either animal or human likeness. No, I mean, is God contradicting his law? And furthermore, what a confusing image to use as a sign of redemption. A snake? A serpent? No one looks at a serpent and thinks safe. It's remarkable. If anything, you'd probably, you'd probably think a bronze lamb, maybe, since it was the image of, you know, the first sign of sacrifice and redemption at the time of Passover. Why this? It was the serpent that caused the damage. It was also the serpent of serpents that inspired the fall of sin for all humanity. Why would God use this? Well, through the wisdom we have received from the church fathers, we understand just how deserving this symbol is, actually. As St. Ambrose of Milan said, the bronze serpent typified the Son of Man and how he would be presented and received amongst us. Just as the bronze serpent gives the appearance of being the guilty party, so does Jesus give the impression of being a treacherous criminal when raised on his cross. But there is another similarity. It's subtle, but altogether integral to the point. As the, as the bronze seraph hadn't a single drop of venom within its fangs, neither did our Savior Jesus possess any guilt of sin. And while, of course, some might think that you know, creating an image of an, you know, an animal at all was contradicting of God's law. No, it was fulfilling. And that we were supposed to look upon salvation face to face. As the Son of Man, the Son of God, becomes one of us and we can stare mercy in the face. So did he want that to be so for the Israelites. To create a sign. A personal sign. St. Ambrose continues saying, Because the Lord took on himself the likeness of a sinner in the truth and deed of his body, but without the truth of sin, that imitating a serpent through a deceitful appearance of human weakness, having laid down the slow of his flesh, he might destroy the cunning of the true serpent, Lucifer. There's one other time that our Lord gives instruction to his disciples about the manner in which they evangelize. He says, be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. It was the evil one who presented himself under a wise countenance, a discerning serpent. 
And because of that, because of that trickery, humanity fell under the temptation of sin. But now the Father sends his only begotten Son, the serpent who would deceive and outwit the bad serpent. This is an image of hope. We celebrate, we rejoice today because of hope. Not just because of the, the seasonal, you know, the sequence in which we follow in our faith, but because we are reminded we must be hopeful in these times, here and now, for the sake of showing the face of our Savior. Right now, these, in these times, when the world is ready to ask for help, to cry out for a Savior, when it sees disciples calm, tranquil, submissive, they see the face of a Savior taking effect. It's in times like these, while of course they are burdensome, they are very rich. The, sa the, the love of the Savior should be more apparent in times like these than in than ordinary times, which are more comfortable. It's right now that the face of Christ has an opportunity to be more contagious than any pandemic. We go forward with these last few weeks. Let's recommit ourselves to our resolutions but bear the joy of hope ceaselessly. Thanks be to God.